Well, I invite you at this time to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This evening we are looking at a passage on the sufficiency of Scripture. We'll be focusing in on verses 15 through 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, which says this. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This evening we are concluding a month-long series that we have been working on about the Word of God entitled The Wonder of the Word. And it was Abner Chow who started the series, who began with a message on the inspiration of Scripture. And he did an excellent job demonstrating the the impossibility that the Bible could merely be words from men, but rather they are the very words of God. As Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians, he wrote them in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, and said, You received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Nathan Busnitz gave a very thorough message on the canonicity of Scripture. What books are in the Scripture? How do we know that they're in the Scripture? What books are not in in, in the canon? And so ultimately, uh, he explained how we know the Bible is complete, and he summarized that message by saying, we know that the 39 books of the Old Testament are in the canon of Scripture because Jesus affirmed them. And we know that the 27 books of the New Testament are in the canon because Jesus authorized his apostles to write them. So we know that God revealed himself and revealed his message to us in Scripture. We know that the Scriptures which are intended for us are complete. Not only that, but Steve Lawson gave us a historical overview of the preservation of the Scriptures. And though he spent much of his time on the preservation of the Word, specifically the English text from the time of the Reformers until now... He also demonstrated that since God's word was first spoken in this world, he has remarkably preserved every jot and every tittle, according to Matthew 5.18. That is to say that God has been so active in preserving his word that not even the tiniest or what may seem to some to be something the most insignificant, the tiniest part of God's word, none of it will be removed before it's all accomplished. Everything in God's word will be fulfilled. And it was just last Sunday night that Brad Clawson taught here on the clarity of Scripture, explaining to us how we can know what the Bible means. And though, admittedly, some places of God's word are more difficult to understand and take more effort to understand than other places, Every passage was intended to be understood, was written to be understood. He he demonstrated to us from the Scriptures that the Scripture is clear. God himself said in Isaiah 45, verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. God has spoken openly to us through his word. And therefore, as Luther said, it is given to be chief place above everything. The Scriptures should be chief among everything. We don't come to a theological discussion with our own ideas and impose them over Scripture or equal with Scripture. 
God's word must have first place and the last word on any theological discussion. And so the task is given to me tonight to speak on the sufficiency of Scripture. How we know the Bible is all we need. Is it sufficient for us? Do we need something else? And someone might ask after these past four messages, is a message on the sufficiency necessary? I mean, after all, if God's word really is the inspired, inerrant word of God, if the canon of God's word is complete and we have it, if God has preserved every part of his word throughout the centuries, and if God's word is not hidden by some secret code or meaning, but it is clear for us, then why wouldn't we hold high the word of God? Why wouldn't we honor it? Who wouldn't love the word of God as much as it deserves to be loved? Here at Grace Church, we endeavor to do exactly that. And this series is just one example of how we do that. But surprisingly, in practice, though most churches today across this world would claim to have a high view of God's word, in practice, there are many churches that do not. At times, we are criticized here for having a high view of God's word. I've heard it. I've had people say things to me that I can't even, I don't even know how to process. I've invited people here who maybe from a different church background or maybe I knew they had some different views. And after hearing a few messages here, one comment I got was, and there's Grace Church, another sermon about the Bible from the Bible. As though though there was something wrong with that. I was asked the question once, I think you have a different Holy Spirit than we do. I said, said, or they said a different trinity. I said, well, what trinity do you have? And they said, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the same trinity that I have. What trinity do you think I have? And they said, well, we think you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Bible. I don't even know how to process that. How how do I separate God's word from God? How do I separate the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, from the word? I do believe in the Holy Spirit. I do understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but I understand it from the word. So how can I separate my understanding of the Trinity without loving and holding high his word. I do not apologize for lifting high the word of God. I don't know how to read the Bible without thinking about the word of God. The Bible is God's word. It's it's hard to find a chapter in the Bible that doesn't reference another part of the word of God or the word word. The word word is found more than a thousand times in the scripture And that doesn't even include synonyms for God's word like precepts, statutes, teachings, commandments, testimonies, ordinances, the law, the writings, wisdom, and there are more. We can hardly think about Scripture at all without thinking about the word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. James 1.22, but be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Matthew 7.24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what's surprising to me about many churches today is that Though you can read their doctrinal statements, though you can read what they say, though they will tell you they have a high view of God's word and they believe that God's word is inspired and inerrant and that the canon is complete and that that we have uh, really everything we need for life and godliness, and yet they seem to demean the word of God. They seem to belittle the word of God. There are many ways that this is accomplished, and I will just, by way of introduction, give you three of them. Three ways that sometimes churches, believers, pastors demean or diminish the Word of God. And the first one is they doubt its effectiveness. The second one is they add to it. And the third one is they elevate something else to its level. 
Let's look at the first one. They doubt its effectiveness. They treat the word as though somehow it's not powerful enough to do the work of the word. That people today won't respond to the word unless we do something else to get them in. So the pastor becomes a comedian and entertainer and, and, and tries to help the word along, give it a little bit of a jump start every time. In the 1980s, it wasn't uncommon for churches to build bowling alleys in their basements or put on New York theater-style productions. The logic behind it was, we've got to get people into the church. And so, therefore, we've got to get something to get them in here. And so, we'll do other things like that the world is doing, and, 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 and that'll get them in here. And then we can hit them with the Word. As though the Word... We're not able to bring them in. And after a couple of decades, it became quite apparent that that strategy was really horrific because if you use worldly techniques to bring people into the church, you end up with a worldly church. And those churches started to recognize that and fail. And so still, though, there are churches and people who doubt the effectiveness of the word. Another way pastors demean the word of God is they add to it. They act as though they love the Word of God, but they still add to it in a way that somehow, in many churches, has become acceptable. Surprisingly, even though there are warnings at the end of the book of Revelation that you should not add to it, that the revelation is complete, people add to it. And so they say things. It's common to hear Christians say things like, well, the Lord told me, or I have a word from the Lord, or I've been anointed with a prophetic utterance for you. God has given me a new revelation. And oftentimes when you start to hear those phrases, I'm one of the worst persons to hear it because I say, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? Are you saying that what you're about to prophesy or say or speak is on the same level of authority and accuracy with the Word of God? I have never heard anyone to me say yes. I'm sure there are some who would presume to say yes, but they don't have a good answer for their false prophecies then. Most will back down and say, no, 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 no. what What I'm doing now is not as authoritative as Scripture and it cannot be trusted to the same level as Scripture. And I find that answer extremely dissatisfying. How can God's revelation not be trustworthy if it's from God? How can God's word not be authoritative? It's clear that many act, only act, as though they are adding to the word. And by doing that, They demean, they diminish what the word really is. There's a third example of how people diminish the word, and that is they elevate something else to the same level as the word. They take something that is outside the Bible that is either unbiblical or extra-biblical, and they elevate it as though it has the same type of impact that the word has. In the past, there have been pastors who've tried to mix secular psychology with biblical teaching and try to innovate some sort of new approach to the truth. Innovation is one of these things that pastors are tempted to do. It's it's a scary thing, really. It used to be that if you want to be innovative, you had to be a liberal because, I mean, liberals don't believe in inerrancy, don't really believe in all the words, so they could make up whatever they want and be very innovative and new that people have never heard it before. And, and, And those who are... Bible believers, those who believed in the inerrant, infallible Word of God, they just are stuck teaching the same thing that you've been, it's been taught for 2,000 years. They, they, they can't be innovative. And so we were stuck not being able to be innovative, which is just fine, because my innovation comes nowhere close to what the Word of God does. I'm just not that clever. And there's times where I hear a sermon, and the pastor's trying to be innovative, and Afterwards, I don't want anybody to ask me how it, how it was. The only thing I can think of saying is, I never saw that in the scriptures before. And there's a reason why I didn't see it. 
But there are a number of theological trends right now where pastors from Bible-believing churches, so-called Bible-believing churches, are being innovative, and they're raising other things up to the same level. If you want to find out where the theological trends are in churches in America, start looking up who's speaking at Christian colleges across America, what messages are being preached there, or go to the Christian publishers and see what's selling. I came across a theological trend uh, with something called the Enneagram. The Enneagram. It elevates unbiblical teaching to the same level as Scripture, and it's becoming common in churches today. In fact, both Zondervan and Ivy Press, formerly InterVarsity Press, have published books on the Enneagram. Uh, Zondervan has more than 30, I believe 37 books right now available on the Enneagram, and Ivy Press has about 60. Enneagram comes from the word Enea, which is in Greek, it means the number nine, and grama, which means writing. And it's associated somehow with a geometrical drawing that looks somewhat like a star or a crown. It has no points on the bottom, but it has nine points up on the top, and it's in a circle. And and there are all these formulas to figure out what the different numbers mean, and it's most often associated with some sort of personality test. And so uh, each point on the drawing is supposed to correlate with some sort of personality test. And if you've met anybody who loves the Enneagram, they say things like, oh, you are a number one. You're a, you're a reformer. Or he's, he's a nine. He's a peacemaker. But look out for him. He's an eight. Stay away from eight. He's a challenger. We don't like challengers. The Enneagram has been used for decades by psychologists Though many psychologists have never even accepted it as scientific, there's a lot of debate about when it, where its origins are from. A lot of Christian teachers today will tell you that it originated uh, in antiquity, that it's mysterious and through revelation and it's passed down through the monastic order and all kinds of fanciful stories and yet In the 1990s, it was a prominent part of the New Age movement, and they traced it back to 1916. But somehow today, Christian publishers are promoting it in the church. And listen to what one pastor of a large multi-campus church not far from us here in Southern California, listen to what he had to say about the Enneagram. Quote, I just want you to know that about 15 years ago, I encountered this thing called the Enneagram. And for those of you who do not know what it is, it is simply a tool. And let me say this. It is the best tool I have ever found to begin the process of being real with yourself. He continues, it's helped me to understand my wife. Oh, there's a selling point. It's, it's, it's helped me to understand me. It's helped me to understand my kids. It has helped me to understand people. And it's the first step to understanding ourselves. I, he goes on and he says, I just want to begin with a word of prayer and I want everyone to relax. I want you to know that everything we're going to do in this series is out of the Bible. But we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to use this tool to help God to teach you about yourself. I want to read that last line. What we are going to do is use this tool to help God teach you about yourself. <sighs> It is so good that we have some sort of nine-pointed drawing that's going to help God out. Unbelievable. But before we get too upset with others, it's important that we remember we ourselves are often tempted to downplay the Word of God and the role that it rightly should have in our lives. You can say you love the Word of God. You can say you're dependent upon the Word of God. You can sing, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food from your Holy Word. 
But if there are days or even weeks where you're not really hungering for the word of God, this is why we need to be reminded about the sufficiency of the word of God. We live in a world that tries to pull us away from the all-sufficient word of God. And so as we come to our passage, and it'll be our real home base here, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, we're going to see three demonstrations of the sufficiency of Scripture that should motivate you to depend upon his word more. Three demonstrations of Scripture's sufficiency. And the first one is, the Scripture is sufficient to save the lost. The Scripture is sufficient to save the lost. We find this in the second part of verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3, but I'm going to start reading in verse 14 so we can have the flow of the passage. 2 Timothy 3, 14 says this, You, Paul addressing young Timothy, the pastor, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that is the scripture, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In the middle of verse 15, Paul mentions those sacred writings, the word of God, the only source of wisdom that can save you from the wrath of God. Why would you look anywhere else for salvation? When it comes to salvation, I do not need any other tool to teach me about myself because I have the word of God that knows me better than I do. The word of God tells me that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. Turn with me, keep your finger there in 2 Timothy and turn with me over to Ephesians. Ephesians is a book that I've grown to love as I've taught through it and, and uh, been really challenged by it more and more the deeper I get into it. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 1 Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice the pronouns here. Paul speaking directly to the church at Ephesus. You, you, you were dead. You formerly walked the course of this world. This made great sense because the church of of, uh, Ephesus was in a society that was pagan, utterly pagan, involved in all kinds of pagan practices, idolatry, um, immoral practices in worship. Uh, Ephesus was known for the goddess Artemis, whose temple was a, looked above the city, was above the city and looked down upon it, was one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. And people had grown up in an utterly pagan society. You, 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 you were dead. You walked according to Satan's domain. And verse three, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. And we look at this and we say, we? Yes, Paul too. But Paul grew up in Judaism. Paul grew up worshiping the true God. Paul grew up knowing Yahweh and his law and studying under Gamaliel and the, the greatest school. And, 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 and Paul was there in a true religion. And yet, he did not know Yahweh. And the lust of his flesh didn't look like the same lust that the Ephesians had, but it was still lust because he was lusting after some sort of piety or looking of holiness. Blameless, he said, he was according to the righteousness of the law or or that which appeared to be righteous. But it's all nothing to him because it wasn't really knowing God. He did not know salvation until Christ appeared to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love it. I love it. Because you can grow up in a family that, that is debaucherous, immoral, 
curses God on a daily basis and be saved out of that, be saved out of following your own lust there. You can be, grow up in a, in a family that goes to church every Sunday and you could have a perfect Sunday school attendance and a memorized scripture. And if you have not yet repented of your sin and turned and trusted in Christ as Lord, you also are dead in your transgressions and sins and you are following after the lusts of the flesh. If you haven't really repented and turned and trust in Christ for salvation, the Bible is clear. God's word is clear. Even back in Ezekiel 18, the soul of him who sins must die. And yet, Ezekiel 18, 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. The Bible teaches repentance. That there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. That all you have done that has been for your own glory, for your own thoughts, that has not been to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, that you've been trying to somehow earn God's favor or make it appear as though you are righteous enough. And yet there is no hope for you because you are a sinner. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23. But for those who repent and turn and trust in Christ, According to Romans chapter 6, the, Romans chapter 4, our sin is taken out of our account and placed into Christ's account where he pays for it in full on the cross. Christ's righteousness is taken out of his account and placed into our account so that when God looks at your life, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. And not only that, I mean, you can rejoice in that, and Paul does in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace have we been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We had no hope in the world, Ephesians 2, 12 says, prior to coming to faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 17 says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away, those are Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, those are Jews, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having built, been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the good news. It just keeps on coming out. I'm going to take you to one more place in Ephesians before we go back to 2 Timothy. Ephesians chapter 4. No, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25 through 27. 25 we're familiar with. 26 and 27 we don't spend as much time on. But I love these verses. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that What is the purpose of Christ's sacrificial love for the church? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What is he talking about here? He's talking to husbands. He's telling them they should make their wives holy, but he uses Christ as the example, and actually we learn later on he's really talking about the church and Christ. But in his mind, he's trying to teach about being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another, verse 18 and then verse 21. But Ephesians 5, we see in verse 26 that there is a purpose here and, 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 and I think it's somewhat related to what a first century wedding would look like. You think about a first century ancient wedding in those, that part of the world. Uh, there were certain traditions that were similar to ours, but it was somewhat different. There were three stages in the ancient wedding. The first stage was the fathers would get together and they would make an arrangement. And once that agreed upon, stage one was done. Stage two was the betrothal. 
The betrothal was much more than an engagement. The betrothal was legally binding. In it, the, two, the couple came together in front of the families and said vows. The rabbi was there. The rabbi would lead them through the vows. The rabbi would, would the, 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 the groom would actually say, you are a wife unto me. And if ever they wanted to break it off for any reason, they needed a certificate of divorce. If he died before they got married, before the wedding was consummated in stage three, before the celebration stage, uh, she was considered to be a widow. And the betrothal period could last uh, a month, a few months, six months, a year, but they would, they would get married, they would have a cel- wedding celebration, the third stage. And that, that day of the wedding celebration began with the bridesmaids coming and giving a, a bridal bath and helping to prepare her ceremonially showing that she's cleansed, that she's pure. They'd dress her in fine linen, and they would wait, and they would wait. This is what's going on in Matthew 25 when the virgins are waiting for the bridegroom. And then at a certain time, unbeknownst to them, the bridegroom would come many times with his groomsmen and procure the bride from her home and parade her through the town or the village to the home of his father where he would present his bride that the father chose for him to the father in all her splendor and all her glory. And Paul writes about Christ's sacrificial love in verse 25 of Ephesians 5 and then read again verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, Paul's writing about marriage here, but he's thinking about the church because it's such a better story because it's not a ceremonial cleansing, but and, and, it's, it, and it's a much greater love story because when the fathers chose the, 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 the couple, there was some sort of attraction. There should have been. Amen? Where's all the singles at? So, the, so, so I mean, when, 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 when you asked your wife to marry you, right, there was some sort of attraction. She was beautiful on that day, but you loved her already from day one. But not so. The church was in rebellion against our Lord, was filthy in sin, Nothing in it attracted Christ to the church. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God made us alive. And Christ, through the washing of water with the word, takes the church and purifies the church and cleanses the church. And Christ, who is God, presents the church to himself without blemish and without stain. That's the greatest love story ever told. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the accomplishment of the word. And that tells us Christ's purposes and desires in his sacrificial love for the church. And he died for the church. He died for the church to take the place of us who deserve eternal punishment and wrath for being rebels against a holy God who will not tolerate sin. Back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Both Paul and Timothy had spent time in Ephesus. He writes to Timothy now in verse 15, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Scriptures, the scriptures are sufficient to save you. But not only that, we see a second demonstration in our passage. Not only are the scriptures sufficient for salvation, but the scriptures are sufficient to mature believers, to mature them. Verse 16, for all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Four ways we find here in verse 16 that matures the believer. Four ways that Scripture brings the believer to maturity. That is through teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The first one, teaching. It's a noun. It's not telling us to be teaching, although we should teach. But that's not what this verse is around about. It is talking to us about the teaching, the doctrine Doctrine is teaching. In fact, this word is often translated as doctrine. You find it just a few verses later. Take a look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That word doctrine is the same word translated as teaching in verse 16 of chapter 3. They will not endure sound teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Teachers in accordance with their own desires. Doctrine is teaching, and sound doctrine only comes from the Word of God. Now, this can be a frustration for many teachers who have that secret desire that they want to receive some sort of credit for what's happening, that they want to receive some sort of glory or honor. In academia and in many pulpits around the world, teachers wrestle with the desires he has for people to praise him, for people to draw their attention upon him and his cleverness. But what he overlooks is the fact that God's word never gets old because there is no way to plumb the depths of it. Which is why Paul cried out in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. This is why Paul was amazed in Ephesians 3 verses 8 and 9 when he preached because he was preaching the unsearchable riches, that is, the boundless riches. Those are the boundless riches of Christ. Charles Spurgeon often challenged people about the kind of preaching they allowed themselves to sit under. Spurgeon said, May I beg you carefully to judge every preacher, not by his gifts, not by his elocutionary powers, not by his status in society, not by the respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this. Does he preach the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? If he does, your sitting under his ministry may prove to you the means of beginning faith in you, begetting faith in you. But if he does not, you cannot expect God's blessing, end quote. The scriptures are sufficient to bring you to maturity, to help you grow. You say, what about other means that God may use, like suffering or fellowship or the ordinances, communion, baptism? What, what about prayer? Yes, God uses those things, but you would have no understanding of them if it were not for the word. Scripture teaches, but a second way Scripture matures a believer is it reproves. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof. The word reproof here means to rebuke. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it was used several times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It carries the idea of bringing to light, exposing, convicting, reprimanding, even sometimes described as discipline. The scripture confronts us. It not only teaches us good doctrine and what is true and right, but it confronts us in areas in our life that are not, both areas of sin and areas of doctrine. It reproves us. This is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 could declare, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. As Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. And this may be another reason why we sometimes avoid reading the Bible. Because we are tempted by the world to believe the lie that sin is somehow worth it and sin is never worth it. And we grow an affection for sin, the sin of our old lives, the sin that should not be present in our lives. And so we push the word of God away, which is foolish. Like the African village where the chief went into town one day and found something new and he brought it back for all the villagers to see and it was a mirror and he hung it on a tree so everybody could look at it and his wife hated it because she soon found out she was not as beautiful as she thought she was. And there were others in the tribe that were much more beautiful than her. And so trying to figure out what she could do about her problem with ugliness, she one day decided to go and take the mirror and break it on the ground. 
and we try to do the same with the word of God. I don't want to deal with my sin. Keep me away from the word of God. But those who understand the grace of God and what he's given us in his word, they don't run away from rebuke, from reproof. They love it. They run for it. They want to be reproved by the word that can see the intentions and thoughts of the heart. Listen to those who wrote the Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son whom he delights. And Psalm 141, verse 5 says this. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. You see something in my life, the psalmist says? It's not consistent with the word of God. Reprove me. It's a blessing. It's oil. I love it. Psalm 19, 8 through 12 says the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by, your, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The psalmist wants the word to find hidden sins. Commenting on Psalm, 10, Psalm 19, verses 8 through 12, John Calvin said, there is not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. So if I'm a sinner and I'm only seeing the tip of the iceberg, show me. And the scriptures are sufficient to do that. Not only will they rebuke you, but they can correct you. This is the third way Scripture matures believers. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. The word for correction here has the word ortho in it. It literally means to make straight again. An orthodontist makes your teeth straight. An orthopedic surgeon takes broken bones and makes them whole again or straight. The Word of God will not only point out areas in your life that are crooked and need to be changed, but it will also straighten them out. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, therefore putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Long for it. You ever see a little baby? It's crying. It's only crying for three reasons. It's either tired, it's hungry, or it's the opposite of hungry. Those are only three reasons babies cry. Well, I, my wife might know more, but, 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 but those are the first three that you're going to go diagnose, right? But man, if it's hungry, you know it's hungry. It longs for it. Put aside all malice, Peter says in 1 Peter 2. That's all evil. Put aside all deceit, how we often lie. Put aside all hypocrisy, how often we have things going on in our lives we don't want other people to know about. Put aside, he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, all envy. Envy is what we want from other people. Slander, what we say badly about other people. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for fourthly, for training in righteousness. This is the fourth way that it, the scripture is sufficient to bring you to maturity. Training in righteousness. You can see the progression here. I mean, teaching gives you the right understanding. Reproof shows you where you need to change. Correction straightens out those crooked areas in your life that need to be changed. And training in righteousness takes you beyond that. The trainer is an educator. He's a coach. He's a tutor. He's like a coach going to train you to be the best athlete or a tutor who's going to make you excel in your studies. The word of God will raise you. And what is its focus? 
righteousness, right living. The person who loves to meditate on the word of God, you may look at his Bible and see all its rough edges, but the more rough edges are on his Bible, the less that are on him. The word of God helps mold us and make us into the people that we should be. Why is it that we are kept from it? Why is it that we are tempted to have a low view of the all-sufficient Scripture? The word training literally originally meant to bring up a child, and later it was used to speak of discipline, but, but cultivating, helping, helping them to grow in righteousness, fulfilling what we know to be true, that we can be confident of this very thing and that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Continue to perfect it, Philippians 1, 6, until the day of Christ Jesus. As our Lord prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the scripture is able to save the lost. The scripture is able to mature believers. A third Sufficiency of Scripture is to equip the servant, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Ephesians 2, verse 10, tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Your mission as a believer, part of your mission is to glorify God through the works that he has given you to do where you are at. And for Timothy, his good works included preaching Christ in areas, many of them difficult areas, where the name of Christ had not yet been preached. Which is why in the very next verse, read with me in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 down through 5, where Paul says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is ju- to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How is it possible? How is it possible that Timothy, a sinner, can take over a ministry that was largely spearheaded by the Apostle Paul? How could young, immature Timothy be patient enough and bold enough and mature enough? How could he be qualified? The word in verse 17, adequate, would probably be better translated as complete, proficient, capable, Legacy Bible does well when it says, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if the word of God can take a young Timothy and save him, mature him, and equip him for ministry, it can do the same for you because it is the word of God. And it is sufficient. Doesn't mean you will be perfect. In this lifetime, you will struggle against sin but you can be above reproach. And just understanding that there is no dominating sin that should characterize your life if you're a believer should send you running to the word because if you want to be free, the word will help you to be free. It is sufficient. Do you believe it? Have you been running to everything else besides the word? Run to the word. Is the Bible all you need? I suppose that depends on your definition of need. It's certainly Jesus Christ is your greatest need. You need his redemption more than anything else, more than breath itself. I have a friend who entered a contest holding your breath underneath the ocean. They swim out, they go under, 
last one to come up alive wins. He won. Five minutes under the waves. Five minutes. He got a diver's watch as a prize. I went and bought a diver's watch. Five minutes. I looked up the world record. 24 minutes is the world record for holding your breath. But you will not stand one second as a sinner before the almighty and holy God. He will not tolerate your presence unless you have turned and repented and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Master. And if you love him with all your heart and all soul and mind, you will love his word. The scriptures are sufficient. Do not let this world trick you, entice you, dupe you into believing that anything else can be a substitute or equal to the word of God. This is God's word. Again, Second Peter Peter wrote, 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Let's pray. Our Father God, We come to you and we are grateful for the faith, the faith that has been once for all handed down to the saints. Your truth does not change. Your word is perfect, without error, inspired, complete, and preserved. It is clear, and therefore we know that it is sufficient. It is sufficient to save the lost, and we pray for those who are lost, that if they realize tonight that they have not yet repented and turned and trusted, and you would pray that this very night they would fall to their knees and cry out to you for salvation. We know that it's sufficient to mature believers, and so we ask, Lord, those of us who have been saved, that you would drive us to the word. Use this thought, Lord, of the sufficiency of Scripture to encourage us that we might be even more excited to grow in maturity, even though it may mean exposing sin and correcting sin, but may you train us up in righteousness so that we would be able to equip others, that we would be able to serve you and that we would be equipped to serve you with the life and the knowledge that is necessary for whatever you have called us to. Forgive us, Father, for times where we have allowed the influence of this world to pull us away from what we know will fulfill each and every spiritual need that we have. There is no satisfaction in this world without you. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness through your word. We are thankful for the word your place has in this congregation. May that never diminish, and may we only grow in our hunger to be in your word even more. And we pray for your church, Lord. Use us to minister to those who are in need so that they too may glory in your goodness. And it is in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.